Good morning, everybody. You can see we've got some folks that aren't here today. It's understandable, given the current present situation that we're in with COVID kind of raising its head again. But I'm glad we're here. I'm glad we have an opportunity to worship the Lord together. I had a professor say to me years ago, years ago, Son, if you ever stop getting nervous when you get up to preach, you need to quit and go home. I'm nervous. Not because I'm standing before you preaching, but because I believe God has given me a word that you need to hear. I've never preached this message. I've been preaching now for 33 years, and... I really believe this may be the first time I've ever used this text today. My concern is that I don't deliver it the way you need to hear it, in the way that God intends for it to come to you. I've been prayerfully considering that all week. Some time ago, I had someone ask me, who was interested in joining our church. Pastor, of the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelations, which ones does Harvest represent? Yeah. I think a better question is, which one of those seven churches represents you? I think you'll understand as we look at this. I was the very first in my family to attend church or attend college. I'll get it right in a minute. <laughs> Told you I was nervous. I actually enrolled in college two times. The first time I went to college, I was right out of high school. The second time was some 15 years later when God called me into ministry. The first time I went to college, it was a junior college. I was 18 years old. I was a full-time student. I was working part-time. I was also playing baseball for the college. Thank God I was living at home. I confess that I was far more serious about playing baseball than I was getting an education. And my grades proved it. Fifteen years later, God called me to leave my job as a welder and become a pastor. To do that, I knew I had to go back to college and I had to get an education. I had to learn how to be a stronger Christian and I had to learn how to develop as a pastor. By that time, Joyce and I had been married for some years and we had two children. And God was asking me to quit a very, very good job to go to school, to go into ministry. He was asking me to leave everything. He was asking me to follow him, and to follow him is serious business. I had a far greater reason to go and to study and to prepare to be a a pastor. Um, God, at that point in my life, he had my attention completely. He had my heart. And... I was far more serious about going and working on preparing myself to do what God had called me to do. And and my grades reveal that when I went to school the second time. Um, 
I never graduated from junior college. I got within three hours of graduating and quit. Had a 2.47 GPA. 19 years later, I graduated from Bible college with honors. What was the difference? I was serious. Serious about God. I wasn't serious when I went to college the first time, but the second time, I was really serious about preparing myself to do what God had put on my heart to do. And that was the difference, being serious, being serious. I think to be more specific about it, I was serious about my relationship with God. And I was serious about embarking on a huge task. Um, God wanted my life. And, and that's serious when you give him your life. When you take God serious, and, and, and by saying that, I'm saying when your personal life is in line under God, when you're in spiritual alignment with the will of God, that, that is when his blessings flow out of you to your family, to your church, to your community, to everybody around you. The key to being a blessing to others is to first realize that it has to begin with you. And then in order for you to be a blessing to other people, you first have to receive the blessings of God. And the only way that you can be blessed by God is to get serious about God. The psalmist bears that truth out when he wrote these words. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat the fruit, eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. The, the happiest people I know in this world are the ones that are blessed by God. A truly happy person is one who fears the Lord. To fear God simply means to take God seriously. It means to hold God up in awe and reverence and, and to honor him. It means that God is not marginalized or discounted or put on the outer skirts of your life. It means that God is not just an afterthought. God, uh, instead God is chosen to be the epicenter of your existence. He becomes everything in which you revolve your life around um, you begin to think more about God than you do the world. So what happens if you choose to, to fear the Lord? The psalmist says God will bless you in at least three special ways. Special ways he talks about in verse 2 of this psalm. First and foremost, God will take care of your fortune, the things you work for. He said you will eat of the fruit of your hands. God's going to bless your fortune. He's also going to take care of your feelings. He said, and you will be happy. And he says, God will take care of your future. He says, you will be happy and it will be well with you. That's future tense. It will be well with you. Friends, those are some of the things that happens to the person who takes God seriously. But not everybody does that, right? Not everybody takes God seriously. We live in a world, we live in a culture that doesn't always take God seriously. To be honest, most people 
keep God at a distance and, and they never bring all of their lives under his control, under his authority, under his rule, under his lordship. And so you and I know that uh, that's what's happening out there in the world, right? Those people aren't coming under God's control. But what may be shocking to you is that there are a whole lot of Christians that live like the world does. Does that shock you? You see, some hold God at a distance. And there there are some that choose not to get close to God, and they refuse to let Him get close to them. They they want to go to heaven, but they refuse to, to, to get serious about God and about His kingdom. And quite honestly, there are people who have joined the church that are not a part of the family of God. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying there are church members who are not saved. Hmm. You may never have heard that before. Uh, You may have. I I say it occasionally. If you've been around me very long and you've been under my teaching, you've heard me quote Dr. Billy Graham who said 75% of, of those who have their names on our church rolls have never had a personal experience with Jesus Christ. 75%. So what did Dr. Graham mean by that statement? Well, if, if I understand, and I haven't been able to personally ask that question of him, but if, if I knew him the way I think I did, I think he meant that only 25% of those who are members of the average church are saved. 25%. And if that is the case, that means 75% of those who identify themselves with Christianity are not real Christians. gotten quiet haven't they? <laughs> they may have a good dose of religion and they may go to church but they have no relationship with Jesus Christ and without a relationship with Jesus Christ you're not saved right that's scriptural some of you may be asking yourself right now well pastor is that your opinion or is there biblical proof of that reality well I, I, I want to show you a passage of scripture that has generated this thought process and the content of this message that I'm giving to you this morning, I think you're going to be surprised. You may even be shocked. It's a well-known passage. These are the actual words of Jesus Christ. They're not my words. These are the words that Jesus spoke. And, and I would say to you that he knows far better than I know what you are. He knows the makeup. He knows the composition of the church better than anyone. So let's look at what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3 verse 19. Jesus said, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Be zealous therefore and repent. Behold I stand at the door and knock and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and will dine with him and He with me, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. In verse 22, he says, he who has an ear, how many do you have? Two. He who has an ear, let him hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice that he didn't say what the Spirit says to the world. He says what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Paul Hahn said these verses contain the most incredible invitation. If Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we know that he is, then this invitation may indeed be the invitation of all invitations. I would agree with Paul. Amen? Verse 20 is the key verse in this group of scriptures. I think we would agree on that. But if you focus on verse 20 alone, then you're going to miss out on who Jesus is giving this invitation to. And that's why I read the entire passage of Scripture, verses 19 through 22. It is very obvious that this, is a, this statement is an invitation for a lost sinner to open up their heart to Jesus and be saved, right? That, that, that's what this is. From my earliest training in evangelism, I was taught that this verse was all about Jesus offering a sinner to accept him as Lord and Savior and to receive his free gift of salvation. And, and folks, in, in all of the study uh, that I've done in the years since that time, uh, I'm in agreement. I was not taught wrongly. That's exactly what this is all about. That is the how and the what of this verse, but you also have to ask the who and the where and the when question to understand who Jesus is really speaking to. We know that it is, it is an invitation to be saved. That, that is the what part of this question. That's what God wants to do. He wants to save people, right? And we know that it is a how question and that Jesus is the one who offers salvation to sinners. Jesus alone is the one who can save the law. So let's go on and ask a few more questions. So where is this invitation being given? In other words, what is the context? Well, it is being given in the context of the church. This invitation is being given on the surface to the church. And specifically, it is a message for the Laodicean church. But it is also a timeless message that is for us as well. It is for you and me. So we know where this message is being presented in the context of the church. And that will also help us to know who. So who is Jesus talking to here? Well, he's talking to the members of the church of Laodicea. And because it is a timeless message, he is speaking to us, to you to me, to all church members as well. So when did this church exist? Well, if you go back and you study history, you'll know that the church of Laodicea existed during the time of Paul's ministry, though we have no reference, no record, record that Paul ever visited this particular church. I am certain, haven't been there, but I am certain that this local church is not in existence today. Most churches come and go after a period of years. This one, I'm sure, is gone. And yet, symbolically, there are and always have been, don't miss this, there are and always have been Laodicean church members in every church that has ever existed. And if I'm understanding what I've read this week in the Bible, 
there will be even more of them in every church in the latter days leading up to the return of Christ. So how do I condense all of that into a single statement? Period. Every Christian church, from the very first one that began in Jerusalem to the very last one that will be planted, wherever that's going to be in the world, has had both saved and unsaved church members in it. Each church will have some Laodicean church members. And every church will have some Philadelphia church members in them. Every church has a mixture of both. Every church has both saved and unsaved members. You say, Pastor, just how do you know that to be true? How do you know that there are both saved and unsaved people who are members of the church? Well, we're going to see how Jesus described uh, this in the last two of the seven churches that he addresses in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And, and what you're going to see as we look at this passage is that the, the church of Philadelphia is symbolic of the saved, the saved church, saved members. The church of Laodicea is symbolic of the unsaved, the unsaved members, the unsaved church. Both exist and especially in the latter days leading up to the return of Christ. So let's focus, first of all, on Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through verse 13. Look with me at verse 7. Jesus said, Write this letter, he's talking to John, write this letter to the angel, to the messenger, or even to the pastor of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is the is holy and true. He is the one who has the key of David. He opens doors and no one can shut them. He shuts doors and no one can open them. This is a message from Jesus to us. Jesus Christ, my friend, is the only one who has the sovereign authority to control who gets into heaven and who gets locked away in hell. He has the keys to both of those domains he says in verse 8 I know all the things that you do God knows everything we do right he knows everything we do everything we don't do nobody fools God you can fool me I can't see what God sees I don't know what God knows so when you ask that question who does your church represent that's a question for God I know this, the fruit of our service to Christ reveals who we are. He says, I, I know the things that you do and I have opened a door for you that no one can shut. This door, if I understand it correctly, represents our adoption into the kingdom of God. It also represents our opportunity to serve him and, and both of those are an open invitation to us. We have an opportunity to be a part of the kingdom of God. We have an opportunity to serve the Lord. He goes on to say, you have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. This, this church in Philadelphia, though it was small in number and viewed by the world as being very insignificant, was spiritually serious about God and, and, and the work of the kingdom of God. They were committed to God. They were dedicated to God. And, you know, they, they, they obeyed his word. 
They lived unashamedly for Jesus Christ. They didn't care that the world knew they were Christians. When you read through all of those descriptions about the seven churches, you'll see that except for the church of Smyrna, this is the only church that did not receive a rebuke from Jesus. He was proud of them. He bragged about them. Uh, they were a blessing to him and they were a blessing for him. And, and even though this church had little worldly power or influence or, or even worldly possessions, Jesus promised to reward their faithfulness by overriding the satanic enemies that came against them. Through this divine act, uh, uh, he defended them. Uh, Jesus said this. He said that he would put their wicked enemies on notice that this church, the, this group of believers were the very ones that he loved. Look, look with me at verse 9. He says, look, I will force those who belong to Satan. And he describes them. He says, those liars who say they are Jews, that say they are people of God but are not. He said, I will force them to come and bow down at your feet. And they will acknowledge you that you are the ones I love. Friends, not only does Jesus love this church and these believers, but I want you to notice that he promises to protect them from the absolute worst time of trouble and tribulation that this world is ever, ever, ever going to see. Look what he says in verse 10. He said, because you have obeyed my command to persevere. What are we called to persevere? Godless governments, deadly pandemics, persecution, and whatever form it comes in. We are called to persevere to the end. He said, because you obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test, notice this, those who belong to this world. The New American Standard Bible says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. The Greek verb keep is followed here by the preposition whose normal meaning is, I will keep you from or I will keep you out of. So the word or the way Jesus worded this statement supports I believe a pre-tribulational rapture of the true church. In other words, he's going to take all true believers out of this world. He's clearly going to remove his church before all hell breaks loose. That is my prayer. That is my understanding. Uh, I'm not the only one. Tony Evans says Jesus will not merely keep us from the test, but from the period of the test. Because that's what he says. He said, I will protect you from the great time of testing. That seven years that's going to be a tribulation period of time, the worst that this world has ever seen. He goes on in verse 11 to say, look, I'm coming quickly. When Jesus comes for the church, he, he comes not to judge at that point, but to give hope and to deliver our salvation to us who believe. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 Paul wrote, brothers and sisters, we have something to say about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the time when 
we will meet together with him. The New Living Translation says, and how we will be gathered together to meet him. If you've read 1 Thessalonians 4, it talks a lot about how we, the true church, will be gathered and then how we will be taken, removed. Well, praise God. This is a hopeful event that we can look forward to. Amen? Come, Lord Jesus, come. If he comes today, it won't be too early. He goes on to say in verse 11, Hold on to what you have. A lot of speculation about what we need to hold on to. I believe it's our witness, our testimony. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown, your reward when you get into heaven. He said, all who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God. They will never have to leave it. And I will write my God's name on them. And they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And they will have my new name inscribed on them. And anyone who is willing to hear should listen to the Spirit and understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Well, there's a whole lot more that I could say about the church at Philadelphia, this saved church, these saved church members, but um, I'd really like to use the rest of my time to address this great, great invitation and who exactly is being uh, spoken to and who this is really for. So we're going to look at verse 14 and verses following. Now, while the church at Philadelphia was known as being a a serious church, the the church of Laodicea was known as being a carnal or worldly church. If if I could be more specific and more blunt, I would just simply say the church of Laodicea was full of lost people. It was a lost church, a lost church. Now, the key to understanding this passage and who Jesus is speaking about is is found in verses 15 and 16. Look at what he says. He said again, I know all the things that you do, that you are neither hot or cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, I will spit you out of my mouth. I will refuse to swallow you. I will refuse to take you in. Now, why is that the case? Well, in in studying uh, to try to find out the reason why he says this, um, I learned that there was a sinful heresy that was very prevalent in this Laodicean church as it was also in the church of Colossae. And the heresy was this. They, They believed and taught that Jesus was a created being. You say that again. They, they taught and believed that Jesus was a created being. In other words, they believed Jesus to be a man, but not God. Now, you may not believe that. You may believe him to be God. But let me ask you, how do you treat him? Do you treat him like God or do you treat him like a man? You need to think about that. This is specifically why Jesus referred to himself here as the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. 
being God, Jesus brought everything into existence. That's what the Word of God says. And being God, He is eternal. He is, you know, the one that had no beginning and the one who will have no end. Jesus is the most preeminent, supreme person ever born on the face of this planet. We need to know that. We need to believe that. We need to live like we believe that. Well, I said to you earlier, not only did the church of Laodicea have problems with its heresy, but so did Colossae. And that's why the apostle Paul wrote these words in his letter to the Christians or to the church at Colossae. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. He wrote, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Now, can I put that in Randy's paraphrase? If you want to see God, then take a good look at Jesus. Because they are one and the same. That's what Paul is saying. He goes on to say that Jesus existed before God made anything at all. And is supreme over all creation. Christ is the one through whom God created everything in heaven and earth. He made the things that we can see and the things that we can't see. We talked about it last week about how he makes kings and kingdoms and rulers and authorities. Everything has been made through him and for him. He existed before everything else began and he holds all creation together. Now why does he do that? Why can't he do that? How does he do that? He's God. I was reading in John MacArthur's commentary about this, and he said, as a man, Jesus had a beginning. As a man. But as God, he was the beginning. He was the beginning, and sadly, this heresy concerning the person of Christ had produced an unregenerate church in Laodicea. An unregenerate church. What does that mean, Pastor? That's big words. That's churchy words. What does it mean? It means this was a church full of lost people. That's what it means. This was a lost church he's writing about. And that's why Jesus said of them, you are neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. Now, not far from Laodicea was the city of Heropolis that was known for its hot springs. And, and close by was also the city of Colossae that was known for its cold, refreshing mountain springs and streams. But when you look at Laodicea, they had no water source. So they were known for their dirty, tipid water that flowed for miles through a dark, dingy, dirty, underground aqueduct. That's where they got their water, from way off somewhere flowed downhill to them. And listen, any thirsty visitor that wasn't accustomed to drinking this nasty water would take a mouthful thinking it was going to be, be good and they would spit it out. My neighbor, my mom and dad's neighbor that lived next to us, we called her Granny Locke. Um, she had a well that only went down about 25 feet. And, and we call it sulfur water. You can smell it before you taste it. It was nasty. 
That's the closest thing I can get to this. A person who would drink it would refuse to swallow it. They would reject it. And, and herein lies the critical point that Jesus wants to make. The, the church of Laodicea, its members were neither cold, they didn't openly reject Jesus Christ, and neither were they hot, they weren't filled with spiritual zeal, they weren't serious about God. Instead, its members were lukewarm, they were hypocrites professing to know Christ, but, but not truly belonging to him. They had membership but not sonship. They were religious but they had no relationship. And therefore Jesus said, I will spit you out of my mouth. So just like the dirty, tipid water of Laodicea, these self-deceived hypocrites sickened the stomach of Christ. And, and, and they weren't what he wanted them to be and they didn't belong to him so he rejected them. You say, but Pastor how do you know that for certain? Well, there's more clues given here in Scripture. Not, not only did they not have a water source, but Laodicea was known for being the wealthiest, most important commercial center of that region. It was primarily known for three industries. They were known for their banking and their wool and their medicine. Primarily, their, their, they were most noted, noted for their eye salve. And I want you to look at what Jesus said here, okay? Again, not my words, verse 17. Jesus said to them, You say that I am rich and I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. In other words, you don't realize just how spiritually bankrupt you are. So, so Jesus offers this unsaved church the spiritual counterpart to their three major industries. And what's important to note is that each item that Jesus mentions was his way of referring to the genuine salvation that they needed and that he offered. Look at verse 18. Jesus said, I advise you to buy gold from me. Gold that has been purified by fire. And then you will be rich and also buy white garments so that you will not be ashamed of your nakedness. And, and buy ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. In other words, come to me, Jesus says, and, and, and I can cure your spiritual bankruptcy, your, your blindness, your nakedness. He said in verse 19 specifically, I am the one who corrects and disciplines everyone I love. Be diligent and turn, repent from your indifference. Repent. Look with me at verse 20. Here's this invitation that he gives to this unregenerated church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now here's a very important question. When Jesus said these words, where is he in proximity to the church? Where is he in proximity to these church members? Where is he in proximity to you? What do you mean, Pastor? 
Well, if you're seeing what I'm seeing, then you realize that they are all on the inside of the building. But Jesus is on the outside. He's knocking on the church house door. Or in our case, when we come to worship, they lock the front door. He's ringing the bell. And he's saying, let me in. He's knocking on the door of the hearts of the members. He's knocking maybe on your door. And according to MacArthur, he says the, the context of this passage demands that, that Christ is seeking to enter this church that bore his name but lacked a single true believer. And he said if just one would, would recognize his or her spiritual bankruptcy and respond in saving faith that Jesus would thus enter the church or enter their hearts or maybe enter your heart. Friends, th this is Jesus obviously giving a carnal church uh, unsaved members an opportunity to get right with God. It was not a call for them to come and recommit their life to the Lord. How, you, how do you recommit something that's not already committed? This is an opportunity for salvation. They needed a personal salvation with Jesus Christ. And that is the invitation that he's given in this passage. Well, Brother Randy, um, how can I know which one I am? How can I know if I'm saved? How, how can I find out if I'm one of the unsaved? Uh, how do I know if I belong to Jesus? Well, let me give you two quick checks on your salvation, okay? These are all scriptural. These are things that you can do really quick. Um, you don't have to take COVID tests to figure this out. You, you know, just, just listen to the Word of God. Here's the first question you need to ask yourself. Does God on a regular basis convict you and correct you? Does He convict you and does He correct you? When was the last time you felt conviction? When was the last time God corrected something in your life that was not right? The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 5 says, And have you entirely forgotten the encouraging word, the words God spoke to you, his children? He said, My child, don't ignore it when the Lord disciplines you, and don't be discouraged when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines, look at this, those he loves, and he punishes those he accepts as his children. I'm not God. I don't know what's going on in your life, but you do. And I would say to you that if you are living your life with unconfessed sin and you think you're getting away with it and there's no conviction on you when you do certain things and there's no attempt by God to correct you, then you probably need to check your heart. You need to check your salvation. And it may be that you need to repent and be saved because God convicts and he corrects his children he doesn't just let you go he doesn't just let you run with unconfessed sin here's a second thought has God been able to change your life are you a different person or are you the same person that you were when you first started coming to church in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul wrote these words. He says, therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. So, so take a minute. You need to do this. I can't do this for you. But take a minute and be honest. Be honest with yourself. Are you today a different person than you were years ago when you first began to think about God? Are you a changed person? Or are you just someone who's policy outside so nobody can see what's going on on the inside? See, a lot of Christians do that. We polish up the outside. We want to look good. But nothing's changed on the inside. Hmm. Well, again, I'm not God. Where am I going with this? Some of you are thinking, You nailed it, Pastor. That's who I am. I know I'm lost. Some of you may be saying, I don't know if I am or if I'm not. What do I need to do? What should I do with this invitation of all invitations? You have an opportunity today to do something really amazing. You may never get that opportunity again. When I was thinking about it at my desk the other day, this passage of Scripture came to my mind, and I want to share it before I give you an opportunity to respond. James chapter 4. What do I need to do if I'm lost? What do I need to do if I don't know what I am? Here's what James says. So humble yourselves before God. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? To be humble. Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil. Why do you need to resist the devil? Because he's got you. He's good with you being right where you're at. You've got to resist him to do the right thing. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw close to God and God will draw close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you hypocrites. Let there be tears for the wrong things that you have done, and I would simply add to the things that you're doing. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. And notice verse 10, he said, When you bow down before the Lord and admit your dependence on him, that is when he will lift you up. And that is when he will give you honor. And that is when he will save your lost soul. Pride is going to keep a lot of people out of heaven. A lot of people. Paul wrote in Romans ten thirteen: Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I believe. 